Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Equip You and Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, in honor of Reformation Month, we're going to do an episode talking about the Reformation and why it's still important today. And, you know, here on the podcast, we love to talk about good theology because good and right theology, it, it informs the mind. It, it, it should motivate our hearts to be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it should, good theology should set our feet to action. That is to walking out the theology that's informing our mind, that's transforming our heart. It leads to a transformed life. And so these things are really, really important to understand. And, and this is really what the Reformation understanding of the five solas does for us. Um, so, you know, we, what we see is that the church is always in need of reform. Even in the New Testament, we see Jesus rebuking Peter in Galatians 2. We see Paul correcting the Corinthians in the book of 1 Corinthians. And since Christians are sinners and saints, uh, some of justice el pector, as Martin Luther said, the church is always in need of reform. The question for us is, when does the need become an absolute necessity? Now, the great reformers of the 16th century concluded that reform was urgent and necessary in their day, and in pursuing reform for the church, they rejected two extremes. On the one hand, they rejected those who insisted that the church was essentially sound and needed no fundamental change. And on the other hand, they rejected those who believed that they could create a perfect church in every detail. The church needed fundamental reform, but it also always needed to be reforming itself. The reformers reached these conclusions from their study of Scripture. In 1543, the reformer of Strasbourg, Martin Bucer, asked John Calvin to write a defense of the Reformation for a presentation for Emperor Charles V at the Imperial Diet uh, to set to meet at Spire in 1544. Bucer knew that the Roman Catholic Emperor was surrounded by counselors who were maligning reform efforts in the Church, and he believed that Calvin was the most capable minister to defend the Protestant cause. Now, Calvin rose to the challenge, and he wrote one of his best works, The Necessity of Reforming the Church. This was a substantial treatise that did not convince the emperor, but it has become regarded by many as the best presentation of reformed doctrine since. Calvin begins by observing that everyone agreed that the church had diseases, both numerous and grievous. Now, Calvin argued that matters were so serious that Christians could not abide a longer delay of reform from slower remedies. He rejects the contention that the reformers were guilty of rash and impious innovation. Rather, he insists that God raised up Luther and others to preserve the truth of our, of our religion. Calvin saw the foundations of Christianity were threatened and that only biblical truth could renew the church. Now, Calvin, in his essay, looks at four great areas in the life of the church that needs reform. These areas form what he calls the soul and the body of the church. The soul of the church is composed of the pure and legitimate worship of God and the salvation of men. The body of the church, according to Calvin, is composed of the use of sacraments and the government of the church. For Calvin, these matters were at the heart of the Reformation debates. The, they were essential to the life of the church and can only be rightly understood in light of the teaching of Scripture. 
So, we might be surprised that Calvin placed the worship of God as the first of the reformational issues, but this was a consistent theme of his. Earlier, he had written to Cardinal Sotolito, There is nothing more perilous to our salvation than a preposterous and perverse worship of God. You see, worship is where we meet with God, and that meeting must be conducted by God's standards. Our worship shows whether we accept or rightly accept God's word as our authority and we submit to it. That's because self-created worship is both a form of works righteousness and an expression of idolatry. In our day, we need reform around this because what we're seeing in the contemporary Christian movement scene itself is this very idea a self-created worship that focuses on the entertainment of the listener or the the idea that the worship leader is the main person in the wor- in the room when it comes to worship rather than worship exists not for our own honor but for the honor of God so whether the person is leading uh you know singing and playing the guitar or playing the piano or any other instrument or the congregation is responding both the worship leader and those engaging in leading worship and the congregation they are all worshipers they are all doing it in the presence of the one who alone is worthy of our worship that is a very important point because what we're seeing today in our worship is the opposite of that idea of biblical worship being about the honor and the glory of god instead it puts the one leading worship uh as the center point rather than the honor and the glory of god and and us just being whether the worship leader or the congregation we're joining with everybody and singing praise to our god reminding ourselves of the glorious truths of scripture that we're singing together that remind us of the glories of christ revealed in the word of God. Now, the next thing that Calvin reminds us in his essay is to what we think of as the greatest issue of the Reformation, namely the doctrine of justification. When he says, We maintain that of what description soever a man's works may be, he is regarded as righteous before God, simply on the footing of gratuitous mercy, because God, without any respect of works, freely adopts him in Christ by imputing the righteousness of Christ to him as if it were his own. This we call the righteousness of faith, when a man, made void and empty of all confidence of works, feels convinced that the only ground of his acceptance with God is a righteousness which is wanting to himself and is borrowed from Christ. The point on which the world always goes astray for this error has prevailed in almost every stage age is in imagining that man, however partially defective he may be, still in some degree merits the favor of God by works. Now, these foundational matters that form the soul of the church are supported by the body of the church, the sacraments and the government of the church. These sacraments must be restored to the pure and the simple meaning and used and given uh, in, uh, to us in the word of God. And so the government of the church must reject all tyranny that binds the consciences of Christians contrary to the word of God. This is why we as Christians must be standing on and for the word. And it's not just our lives personally that must be conforming more and more to the standard of the word of God. It's our services, our church services must be reforming our our worship, our preaching, our teaching, our fellowship, uh, the music, uh, all of it must be conforming ever more to the glory of Christ as revealed in the word of God. 
And as we look at the church in our day, we may well conclude that reformation is needed. In fact, it's necessary. In many of the areas about which Calvin was so concerned, only the word and the spirit of God will ultimately reform the church. But we should pray and work faithfully that such reform will come in our own time. Martin Luther's publication of his 95 Theses, an event most observers point to as the unofficial beginning of the Reformation. Tradition says that Luther nailed a copy of his thesis on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And since these theses were published, presumably nailed on October 31st, 1517, many Protestants informally celebrate uh, the date every year as Reformation Day. Now, some might understand and even be tempted to downplay Reformation Day. After all, you know, uh, even good things can be enjoyed in excess. Uh, nevertheless, the Reformation still matters today, both today in the sense of, of whether it's a milestone year or or any other year, but and today in the sense of this particular moment in Christian history, here's three reasons why the Reformation still matters today. First, the Reformation still matters today because Scripture alone is still our supreme authority for faith and for practice. Now, in the minds of many medieval Christians, Scripture and church tradition were treated as more or less of equal authorities. In fact, when it came to certain medieval doctrines and practices, tradition was often functionally more authoritative than Scripture. The Reformers didn't always agree with each other on when tradition trumped Scripture, nor were they united in their view on the proper role of tradition. But there was widespread agreement that the Bible alone is our ultimate authority in the Christian life, standing in judgment over all traditions, all practices, all priorities, and all opinions. And so the relationship between Scripture and tradition remains a very thorny issue today. Some Christians groups, most notably Roman Catholics, still argue that tradition is equally authoritative with Scripture, rejecting the Reformation principle. Even among believers who affirm sola scriptura, Scripture alone, there is a tendency to describe to ascribe too much authority in the little t traditions we assume to be normative. While few evangelical churches would affirm papal authority or look to a formal magisterium for guidance as Catholics do, many have their own extra-biblical traditions which are treated as untouchable, perhaps even sacred. See, the Reformation will still matter as long as the Bible isn't recognized by all Christians as our final authority for faithfulness and flourishing for individuals, for families, for churches and denominations. Now, as we've talked about today on, on this show many times, we are in need of Reformation around the Word of God because Today, what we're seeing is the rise of New Age with the Enneagram, even the Enneagram being a so-called litmus test for many Christians and many churches all throughout our land as a means to help them to regulate their behavior. Rather, as Christians, as Protestants, and especially as Reformed Christians following in the, in the catechisms and the confessions of the Reformed faith like the Heidelberg and the Westminster Confession and the 1689 London Baptist, those give us no room, uh, those confessions give no room for any of that at all. Instead, what they do is, is they help us to see how our faith is to be understood. It's to be regulated by the very word of God and then instructed or 
uh, have a place, uh, guardrails. This is what creeds and confessions do. They give us guardrails so that we don't veer off the path of biblical orthodoxy or theological orthodoxy, meaning that we don't veer off what Scripture teaches and we don't veer off on what the church has taught about uh, doctrine. And yet, in our own day, as we've talked about on this show, with the New Apostolic Reformation, what we see in the New, New Apostolic Reformation is what we see is biblical and theological illiteracy being rampant. What we see is not sola scriptura being placed front and central, as in the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word, the teaching of people of good theology and loving them with that theology, serving them and engaging in loving fellowship with one another through and by the word and because of the unity that we have in the spirit that he provides through union with Christ to us. Instead, what we see with, with the New Apostolic Reformation is we're seeing men like Bill Johnson and others promote teachers who think that they need additional revelation, that they hear from God through dreams and visions and, and extra-biblical interpretations. So they, what they need then is these other teachers. They need these books that they put out and they rubber stamp. Now, let me be clear about something. Every Christian tradition rubber stamps something in some way. We all do it. If we think that somebody is trustworthy and, and they hold our beliefs and their convictions, a church might bring that pastor on staff because they share their, their same theological convictions, the essentials of faith, and then that church particular theological uh, distinction, distinctives or distinctions and so on and so forth. We all do it, and then we rubber stamp that person and say, that is a trustworthy brother who's going to preach to us the word. Or oh, various parachurch organizations might bring in a speaker, and, and, and they support them. Or, or they might have teaching fellows, and they rubber stamp them, and, and those are trustworthy. And the same is true in the New Apostolic Reformation, except instead of with Scripture being the norm of norms, meaning that it, 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 it regulates all teaching because we search the Scripture to see if these things are so, as Acts 17.11 says, and, and we hold fast, as 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, and we reject what's, what's false. That, that's what we're to do. Instead, what, what the New Apostolic Reformation does with Bill Johnson and many, many others in that movement what they do is, is they rubber stamp false teachers. They rubber stamp false teachers and say, this person, although they teach uh, errant doctrine and they, they teach heresy, they are rubber stamped. And so their teaching and their books are bought in massive droves. And they're even published by even some mainline publishers. We're even seeing this with the Enneagram, with Zondervan and other publishers out there. And it's deeply concerning. And so our need for reformation is this. We as Christians need to know our Bibles. That famous example of the secret service agent that studies the dollar bill is, is, is well used for a reason. And, and, it's, and it's because of this. We as Christians need to know our Bibles, our words so well, like, like the Secret Service agent knows the dollar bill. They can spot out a fake. They, when, when they hear false teaching, they can spot it. They can root it out. 
That is the need of our day. That is why the Bereans were commanded by Paul because they were searching the scripture. They had their Bibles open. They were searching to see, you know, is what Paul's saying lining up with, with, with the scriptures, with the word of God, or is it not? That's the standard. That is the, the standard. And by the way, we also need to say one other thing because James 3.1 says that teachers will be held to a stricter judgment, meaning that they will be held to a stricter account. That is a fearful thing because we are talking about the Lord God. We're talking about the one who holds together all the cosmos. We're talking about the one who is sovereign in power and majesty, the one who knows the very condition of our hearts. Uh, Even as we talk, uh, he knows the thoughts that we have before we even think them. And so even our very thoughts in our lives and the motivations of our hearts are to be reformed and conformed more into the image of Christ as revealed in the Word of God. So it's not only just for abhorrent movements that reformation is needed. Reformation is needed in our own hearts. We need reformation. Charles Spurgeon said, I have a great need of Christ and a great Christ for my need. So we need reformation today. Uh, We could say, I could say a lot, a lot about that. Uh, Just one more thought, actually. We need reformation because our emotions are even our emotions are fickle we can we can tend as christians to get into this mindset where it becomes more about my emotions and what i think and what i'm experiencing rather than my experience being regulated by the word of god me coming more under the authority of god's word as we see in in the psalms for example which are so littered you see david down in the dumps and then he reminds himself to hope in God again. Well, second point, the Reformation still matters today because the biblical gospel alone is still the only hope for the salvation of sinners. And that's because during the medieval era, the Catholic Church came to embrace the idea that justification is a gradual process that is tied to ongoing faithful participation in a variety of sacraments. The upshot was that justification was assumed to be based on a combination of faith and works. And during the Reformation, Protestants argued that this position muddied the relationship between justification and sanctification. That is, our being legally declared not guilty by Christ, and our ongoing growth in Christ in the grace of God, becoming more like who we are in Christ. And this constituted a great threat to the biblical gospel itself. This serious error was rooted in the aforementioned medieval tendency to elevate tradition over Scripture. And so the Reformers countered that the Scriptures teach that justification is by grace alone, sola gratia, through faith alone, sola fide, in Christ alone, solus Christus, to the glory of God alone, sola Deo gloria. And today there remains a lack of gospel clarity in many corners of the visible church. And of course, some traditions still confuse the relationship between faith and works, but other gospel heirs tend to creep into evangelical churches. Some make much of the conversion experience itself, but with little emphasis on justification. Others struggle with legalism, which can contribute to a lack of spiritual assurance for many believers. And still others struggle with too low a view of human sin, rendering justification less necessary. Finally, some waffle on the exclusivity of Christ in practice, if not in theory, suggesting that there might be more than one pathway to being made right with God. 
See, the Reformation still matters as long as the biblical gospel is threatened by errors that distort, confuse, downplay, and sometimes even reject the good news that our hope is built on nothing less than the blood and righteousness of Christ alone. In fact, one movement that we're seeing is this rise of this modern-day deliverance ministry that really isn't so new. It came out of the, even before the word of faith, but it, it came out of even more of the word of faith and, and the Toronto blessing and, and also the new apostolic reformation again. And this idea is that, you know what? Christians can give legal rights, not that their fellowship is, is impeded or interrupted by, by their sin. So they need to continue to repent of sin but that they, as Christians, give over legal rights to Satan when they have unforgiveness and bitterness and resentment and all the like in their life. That's a false gospel. It, it, it says that the gospel isn't enough, that the gospel isn't signed and sealed and delivered, as Jesus said in John 19.30 when he says, it is finished. It also says that Christ is not enough. It also says to the Christian that you are not held secure in the love of God, which Paul repeatedly emphasizes in Romans 8.31 and 39. And not to mention all the passages that talk about as a Christian, we are indwelt by the by the Spirit. We are sealed in in the spirit uh, the, at the moment of our conversion. And so this movement uh, proclaims a false gospel. And then also we're also seeing the rise of progressive Christianity, which is really theological liberalism, which in 1920, J. Gresham Machen wrote the book, Christianity and Liberalism. And in this book, he called theological liberalism or what is known as progressive Christianity today. He called it another religion. That is a different religion. That is so important to understand because what we're seeing with this theological liberalism is, as we were talking about earlier, the elevation of my feelings, my opinions. And so everything becomes according to how I see it, not according to the standard, the objective standard of God's word, but subjective to how I see it, to how I think, to how I feel. And this is why we're seeing the rampant rise of of uh, the new apostolic reformation and new age in the church today and continuing to have a hold because as as paul says in second timothy 4, 3 and 4 the people will be lovers of self we will itch seek after teachers who will itch our ears that's why rather than grounding ourselves in the revelation of god and defined in his word, which reveals a person and work of Christ, we instead seek after teachers who will suit our own passions and our own pleasure. We were talking just a minute ago about the modern-day deliverance ministry, and one of the reasons, to be clear, that I mentioned that is because it says that Christians not only can be, you know, uh, they can give legal rights to Satan, but that, and not that we're going to be, you know, oppressed, as Christians believe, but we're going to be possessed. That's that's the central issue with the modern-day deliverance ministry. They, they say that Christians surrender legal rights to Satan whenever they have unforgiveness or bitterness or anger. And then this says that the other part is that they suggest that Christians can be possessed by Satan. And what that means is that that if Christians can be possessed and they surrender legal rights, then then guess what? Everything that we've already talked about, about justification, about sanctification, about the work of the Spirit and the life of the Christian, it's all nullified and another gospel is proclaimed by these men. And that's exactly what they do. And this is why we need to be so clear 
about the gospel of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and that Christ is truly sufficient as he's revealed in the word of God. That's why we need to be clear about these things today. And we need more clarity as we're talking about, because the gospel is not only at stake here. If if we don't, if we're not clear on the gospel, people are going to be led astray. This is a matter, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, of first importance. And we can always grow in our skill and our handling and in our ability of the Word of God and in our skill in handling and ability to communicate biblical truth better and, and, in, and in more effective ways. Even, even as I say that, I realize there's many ways in which I can be better uh, in communicating on this podcast when I have the opportunity to preach or when I'm meeting one-on-one and talking with somebody. I, I can always be better, and that's humility. That's a recognition that uh, I need the Lord's help. I need the help of His grace. I need the help of the Spirit. I need to continue to be growing myself in, in the knowledge of, of biblical truth and of what the church has taught and of, of even more about church history and systematic theology and so that I can better communicate and, and be a more effective instrument. But not only that, so that I can continue to grow myself in my own personal godliness. So the third point that we're going to consider is the Reformation still matters today because the church still needs to be reformed. Now, one of the principles that came out of the Reformation is that a Reformed church is always in need of reforming. That is not to say that the, that churches should keep reforming for the sake of further change as if change itself is a virtue. Rather, it means that a church is committed to the transforming power of the gospel and grounds itself in the supreme authority of Scripture. And that church is always going to be scrutinizing its practices uh, through the Word of God. Now, we need to be clear, no church is perfectly conformed to the Word of God. No church's gospel message is wholly unthreatened by heresy, neglect, or spiritual drift. Churches are communities of sinners who have been redeemed and become disciples, but there still remain sinners. They still have indwelling sin. Because of this reality, pastors should lead churches to embrace what may be called reformational instincts, a ruthless commitment to placing every doctrine, every practice, and priority under the microscope of Scripture and alongside the measuring stick of the gospel. The Reformation still matters as long as a church remains in need of further reform, and that need will remain until the day when the great church victorious shall be the church at rest in the new creation. Now, On October 31st, 2016, Pope Francis announced that after 500 years, Protestants and Catholics, he said, have the opportunity to mend a critical moment of our history by moving beyond the controversies and disagreements that have often prevented us from understanding one another. From that, it sounds as if the Reformation was an unfortunate and unnecessary squabble over trifles, a childish outburst that can all be put behind us now that we've grown up. But tell that to Martin Luther, who felt such liberation and joy at his rediscovery of justification by faith alone, that he wrote at this time, I felt that I was altogether born again and entered paradise itself through open gates. Tell that to William Tyndale, who found it such merry, glad, and joyful tidings that it made him sing, dance, and leap for joy. Tell it to Thomas Bilney, who found it gave him a marvelous comfort and quietness, insomuch that it bruised, my bruised bones leapt and for joy. Clearly, those first reformers didn't think they were picking a juvenile fight. As they saw it, they discovered glad tidings of great joy. In fact, at the beginning of the 16th century, Europe had been without a Bible that people could read for something like a thousand years. 
Thomas Bilney had thus never encountered the words in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Instead of the word of God, they were left with the, to the understanding that God is a God who enables people to earn their own salvation. As one of the teachers of the day put it like this, God will not deny grace to those who do their best. And yet, what they, they were meant as cheering words were left a very sour taste for anyone who took them seriously. How, how could you be sure you really had done your best? How could you tell if you had become the sort of just person who merited salvation? Martin Luther certainly tried. I was a good monk, he wrote. I kept my order so strictly that I could say that if ever a monk could get to heaven through monastic discipline, I should have entered in. And yet he found, he said, my conscience would not give me certainty. But I always doubted and said, you didn't do that right. You weren't contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. And the more I tried to remedy an uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience with human traditions, the more daily I found it more uncertain, weaker, and more troubled. According to Roman Catholicism, Luther was quite right to be unsure of heaven. Confidence of a place in heaven was considered errant presupposition, and one was one of the charges made against Joan of Arc at a trial in 1431. And there the judge proclaimed, The woman sins when she says that she is certain of being received into paradise, as if she were already a partaker of glory, seeing that on this earthly journey no pilgrimage knows, no pilgrim knows if he is worthy of the glory or a punishment which the sovereign judge alone can tell. That judgment made complete sense with the logic of the system. If we can only enter heaven because we have been, by God's enabling grace, become personally worthy of it, then of course no one can be sure of, a, of it. By that line of reason, and I can, I can only have as much confidence in heaven as I have confidence in my, jo- in my own sinfulness. And that was surely why the young Martin Luther screamed with fear when, as a student, he was nearly struck by lightning and a thunderstorm. He was terrified of death itself. But without knowledge of Christ's sufficient and grace's salvation, without knowledge of justification by faith alone and Christ alone, he had no hope of heaven. And this is why his rediscovery in Scripture of justification by faith alone felt like entering paradise through open gates. It meant that instead of all of his angst and all of his terror, he could now write as he did. When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. And that is why the Reformation gave people such a taste for sermons and Bible reading. For to be able to read God's word and to see them in them such good news that God saves sinners, not on the basis of how well they repent, but entirely on his own grace, was like a burst of Mediterranean sunshine into the gray world of religious guilt. None of the goodness or the relevance of the Reformation insights have faded over over the years. The answers to the same key questions make all the difference between human hopelessness and happiness. What will happen to me when I die? How can I know? Is justification the gift of a righteous status, as the reformers argued, or a process of becoming more holy, as Rome asserts? Can I confidently rely for my salvation on Christ alone, or does my salvation also rest on my own efforts toward and success in achieving holiness? Almost certainly what confuses people into thinking that the Reformation is a bit of history we can move on beyond this idea of it was a reaction to some problem of the day. 
But the closer one looks, the closer it becomes. The Reformation was not principally a negative movement about moving away from Rome and its corruption. It was a positive movement. It was about moving towards the gospel. And that is precisely what preserves the validity of the Reformation for today. If the Reformation had been a mere reaction to a historical situation 500 years or more ago, one would expect it to be over today. But as a program to move ever closer to the gospel, it's never going to be over. Another objection is that today's culture of positive thinking and self-esteem has wiped away all perceived need for the sinner to be justified. Now, not many today find themselves wearing hair uh, hair shirts and, and enduring all-night prayer vigils in the freezing cold to earn the favor of God. All in all, then, Luther's problem of being tortured by guilt before the divine judge is dismissed as a 16th century problem, and his solution of justification by faith alone is therefore dismissed as unnecessary for us today. But it is, in fact, precisely into this context that Luther's solution rings out as such a happy and relevant news. For having jettisoned the idea that we might ever be guilty before God and therefore in need of his justification, our culture has succumbed to the old problem of guilt in subtler ways with no means to answer. We are all bombarded with the message that we will be more loved when we make ourselves more attractive. It may not be God-related, and yet it is still a religion of works, and it is one that's deeply embedded. For that, the Reformation has the most sparkling good news. Luther speaks words that cut through the gloom like a glorious and unexpected sunbeam when he says, The love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. Rather than seeking its own good, the love of God flows forth and bestows good. Therefore, sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attracted. 500 years later, the Roman Catholic Church has still not been reformed. For all the warm, economical language used by many Protestants and Roman Catholics, Rome still repudiates justification by faith alone. It feels it can do so because Scripture is not regarded as the supreme authority to which popes, councils, and doctrines must conform. And because Scripture is so relegated, biblical literacy is not encouraged. That is, knowing what the Bible says. And, and growing, actually, in what the church has taught. Instead, it's what the church has taught and not what the Bible says. And thus, millions of poor Roman Catholics are kept from the light of the Word of God. And outside Roman Catholicism, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is routinely shied away from as insignificant, wrong-headed, or perplexing. Some new perspectives on what the Apostle Paul meant by justification, especially when they have tended to shift the emphasis away from any need for personal conversion, have as much as anything confused people, leaving the article that Luther said cannot be given up or compromised as just that, given up or compromised. Now is not a time to be shy about justification or the supreme authority of which scripture that that proclaims it. Justification by faith alone is no relic of the history books. It remains today as the only message of ultimate liberation, the message with the deepest power to make humans unfurl and flourish. It gives assurance before our holy God, and it turns sinners who attempt to buy God off into saints who love and fear him. And oh, what opportunities we have today for spreading the good news of the grace of God. 
over 500 years ago, Gutenberg's recent invention of the printing press meant that the light of the gospel could spread at a speed never before witnessed. Tyndale's Bibles and Luther's tracts could go out by the thousands. Today, digital technology has given us another Gutenberg moment, and the same message can now be spread spread at speeds Luther could never imagine. But both the need and the opportunities are as great as they were over 500 years ago. In fact, they are greater. Let us then take courage from the faithfulness of the reformers and hold the same wonderful gospel high, for it has lost none of its power or its power to dispel our darkness. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching this episode. Until next week, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.